If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Revelation chapter 3, please. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Uh, we're continuing to work through this series that I've intellectually called the seven churches in Revelation because that's what it's written as. <laughs> continuing that, we're on church number five this morning. Uh, we are now at uh, the church in Sardis. Right, Sardis was one of the oldest cities in that region, and it was also one of the best defended cities in that region. It's located roughly 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, so if you'll remember, we're going in this circle. It started at Ephesus, and we're making our way around this circle. So Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and now we're right in the middle of these four over here where Sardis is located. At one time, that city was uh, famous, uh, and it was very wealthy. It was known for its temple uh, to Sibyl. Uh, it was known for its Acropolis, which is uh, an upper level in the city that's uh, strongly fortified. That's where most of your uh, elite would live in that Acropolis. And it's also known for an, a Necropolis, uh, which is a large, elaborate cemetery that has a lot of tomb monuments. They said this one could be seen from seven miles away uh, because of the size of its uh, burial mounds. Uh, so it was called the Cemetery of a Thousand Hills. So this necropolis was massive. Um, at this point in history, though, Sardis had kind of crested its peak, and it was beginning to be in the decline as it was living on past reputation. Uh, and it seems like the church in Sardis was doing the same thing. Uh, they had a past reputation, and they were living in that past reputation, uh, but they are no longer doing as the Lord has commanded. Now, as we have gone through this, I have mentioned that there is a pattern with each one of the letters that Jesus has written to all of these churches. Uh, there was a, an authoritative opening. There is an encouragement. There's a rebuke for mistakes in all except for two churches. And then there is how to fix it and the consequences for not fixing it and the rewards for those who have been faithful the entire time. Uh, well, I found out this week that as I had done my preliminary reading through this to get an understanding of that, that I misread about the church in Sardis. So, because like I said, everyone has authoritative opening, they have encouragement, but the church in Sardis has no encouragement. As we'll see as we read in verses 1 through 6, it leads off in a similar way as some of the previous churches. Jesus is going to say, you'll notice, I, I, I've seen your works. And so in my mind, I just put that aside as I was reading through quickly that, okay, there's an encouragement here. He sees their works. The problem is, though, he's not impressed with their works. And so there is, uh, there is no encouragement for the church in Sardis. So it's breaking this pattern as well uh, in that instead of not having rebukes, it has nothing but rebuke. It has nothing but correction. And so as we read this, Think about what this says about the church in Sardis and, and think about how it speaks to us today. So let me pray before we dive into the word. And from there, we'll read Revelation 3 verses 1 to 6. Father, as we open your word, 
I pray that you would help us to um, listen well, uh, to open our hearts to what you have to say, uh, to compare our lives to the truth of Scripture, and help us to change so that we would honor you and follow you with everything that we have. Lord, it's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. All right, Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. Begins by saying, Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you will have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white, because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So as in all the other letters, we begin with an authoritative opening, what Jesus says about himself in order to make everything that follows that be meaningful to the churches that are hearing it. And as Jesus is telling the church in Sardis why he should listen, he begins by saying, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now we've already addressed what the seven stars are throughout this series. We know that each of these stars represents an angel that's seemingly presiding over each church that are loyal and obedient to Jesus. He's writing to those angels who are then conveying this information to the churches. But what is Jesus referring to here when he talks about the seven spirits of God? The seven spirits of God is not an angelic uh, heavenly entourage. It's not a planetary deity kind of like what uh, we see in, in other religions. What he's talking about here is the complete or perfect Holy Spirit. Right? The Spirit in His fullness. And we, we need to be mindful of the fact that Revelation is full of symbolism. And one of the symbols found throughout Scripture is the number seven. The number seven means perfection. Right? So often when we see seven show, show up throughout the pages of Scripture, it's talking about perfection. And so this mention of the seven spirits of God seems to be an allusion to Isaiah 11, 2 through 5, and Zechariah 4, 1 to 6. So listen to this. Isaiah 11, 2 through 5 says this. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom, of understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He will delight his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. And so we see different aspects of the Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11. And in Zechariah 4, we see more of this, uh, the number 7 uh, numerology here. It says, The angel who was speaking with me then returned and roused me as one awaking out of sleep. He asked me, What do you see? I replied, I see a golden lampstand with a bowl at the top. The lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven spouts 
for each of the lamps. There also were two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Then I asked the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my lord? Don't you know what they are, replied the angel who was speaking with me. I said, No, my lord. So he answered me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. So these sevens are reflecting the spirit. So in mentioning this to the church in Sardis, Jesus is saying that the Savior, the authoritative opening, the Savior has the spirit to the one who has the spirit. But he is saying, you do not have the spirit. He's showing himself to be apart from them as the one who has the spirit, as the one who has the, the, the seven angels under his control. He says, you do not have this spirit. Sardis is spiritually dead. The church in Sardis has a reputation for being alive, though. Right? As I said, they, they have, they're kind of banking on their history, their past. Right? They have a history of activity. They have a history of having size, of having money, of having ministries that would cause people to stop and take notice. Right? They appear to be and claim to be healthy and successful, but unfortunately, they're not spiritually healthy. Right? By, by God's standards, this church is dead. And so what is going wrong in the church in Sardis? Unfortunately, we don't have a ton of information that even lets us know exactly what's going on. But if you look at verse 5, it gives us a, a possible idea of what's going on there. Jesus tells the people who are undefiled and are currently living out their faith that he will acknowledge them before his Father. And we have seen among the letters to the previous churches that Jesus often takes a shot at what is going wrong by saying the opposite in what his commendation will be to those who have been faithful. Right? So he gives the opposite reaction and gives that reward to the faithful. So if Jesus is talking about acknowledging faithful believers to his Father, that seems to indicate, given what, given what we know from the previous churches, that there might be an issue that the church in Sardis has stopped acknowledging Jesus to the culture around them. Right? They've stopped proclaiming the truth. They've stopped making Jesus the primary focus of their worship. It seems as though the church is unwilling to confess that allegiance to Christ. And that follows a pattern that Jesus has of encouraging the churches uh, because in the churches that he has encouraged, we have seen that for the faithful churches, there has been persecution. And for the one that gets no rebuke at all, it was severe persecution that they were enduring. But there's no mention of any persecution endurance happening right here with the church in Sardis. Right? There's no encouragement. There's no strife. There's no persecution being talked about here at all. And why would that be? Well, probably because they're not pushing back at all against their culture. Right? The church there might be busy. The church there might have a lot of activity that's happening among their people, but that busyness is ineffective. That busyness is a worthless gathering of people who are completely unoffensive to the world around them. So unoffensive that they are not receiving any persecution whatsoever. Right? The church is currently lacking anything useful for the kingdom of God. They have grown content with being mediocre. They're content with doing things halfway. They're comfortable 
They have a convenient faith. Nothing that is pushing back. Nothing that is making life difficult for them among the people that they live with. And because of that, the culture is not oppressing them. Right? The culture, there's nothing to oppress. There's nothing to stomp out. Because they're not saying you can't live that way. They're not saying that you're worshiping incorrectly. They're not saying that you need to give your time, talent, and treasure to Christ. They're just looking like the rest of the culture around them. And they're so weak in their confession of Christ that they didn't offend anybody. And Jesus tells us clearly in the Gospels that if we are faithful in our pursuit of Jesus, we will be persecuted by the world around us. And they didn't experience any of that. Now, to say that, though, we should not strive to be offensive. We should not strive to be offensive in how we handle the Gospel or how we handle the Word of God. We shouldn't use the Scriptures to bludgeon people. We shouldn't use the truth of Scripture to shame people. Right? We, shouldn't be, we shouldn't set out to make people angry. Do you know some people that are like that? I do. I know some people that use the Word of God like a, a big stick. I've heard of churches that show up and they make people feel awful as they go into abortion clinics. They go in to soldiers' funerals and they pick at the funerals. They hold up offensive signs about how God feels about certain people. And this is, that is not the Christian way. We should not set out to be offensive with what we are sharing about the gospel. But the gospel is offensive. The gospel itself is offensive. We don't need to be offensive because to a lost and dying world, the gospel is either offensive or it's ridiculous. Right? We're either offensive telling people that they can't live however they want to or they consider us to be backwater hicks that you know believe in superstitious nonsense right paul says in first corinthians 1 22 to 25 for the jews ask for signs and the greeks seek wisdom but we preached christ crucified a stumbling block to the jews and foolishness to the gentiles yet to those who are called both jews and greeks Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. But the church in Sardis is facing no hardship at all. So it's unlikely, I'm sorry, so it's likely that most of the people that call that church home have completely abandoned the gospel, the true gospel. Right? So what does Jesus command them to do though for, for this church? Well, we see five commands in, the, in this very short passage. Number one is to be alert. Or in other words, wake up. Right? Wake up to what's going on around you. And starting off with this command should be encouraging to us and to them because it shows that it's not too late. Right? It shows that the church is not beyond hope. If the church was beyond hope, what's the point of being alert? What would be the point of waking up if the the church has already been uh, resigned to death? Then why would he say that they need to be alert? As it is, Jesus says, snap out of it. This has gone on for far too long. Stop it. Do you want the church to die? Do you want your people condemned to an eternity separated from God? Then snap out of this ineffective ministry. Get back to proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Wake up. 
The second thing that he says to the church there, he says to strengthen what remains. So there is a remnant in the church that has remained faithful to Christ. And that remnant, it needs to be protected and it needs to be strengthened because that group is going to be needed to build the church back up to what it should be. So protect those things. Realize that those people are engaged in what matters. And everything else that's going along the majority of these people needs to be cut away. So when you see these people that are, that are fighting for the faith, that are struggling for the gospel to remain center in the church, Jesus says to strengthen that. That needs to be our focus. That needs to be this focus in the church in Sardis. So what are they going to do? Uh, so how are they going to strengthen what remains? Command number three, Jesus says by remembering what you have received and heard. That's how you're going to strengthen and build back up the church. You're going to remember what you have seen, what you have received, and what you have heard. Right? And what is that? We've talked about this throughout this series. What have they heard? What have they received? It's the gospel. They have received and heard the gospel. And if they are going to be effective for the kingdom of God, they must remember the gospel. The gospel is this, that you are a sinful person that has, by your sin, made yourself a rebel of God. You are an enemy of the Lord. And the only way that we can have restoration is for Jesus, God's Son, to come down and live a perfect life that we cannot live, to take our punishment on the cross, to die the death that we deserve, and to be raised again the third day, showing that He has conquered sin and conquered death because God approved of His sacrifice. And if, if that is not the central idea of our ministry, then we are veering off into dangerous territory. Jesus says, remember the Gospel. No matter, you can do whatever you want as far as the activities of the church, but if you have forgotten the Gospel, if you have left that behind, it's completely worthless. There's nothing to build on in the church except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, remember what you have received and what you have heard. And once you have remembered that gospel, what are they told to do next? Keep it. Number four, keep it. We must work hard to keep the gospel at the forefront of our lives. It doesn't happen naturally and it doesn't happen casually. Our sin nature is constantly battling in our lives for center stage. In Christ, when we come to faith, we are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer bound to it. But it is still a constant battle with our old flesh and the the new heart that God has given us. And so we must constantly fight to keep that at front and center of our lives, right? We, we do not have the luxury of laziness when it comes to how we live our life. We drift towards apathy. We drift towards laziness. We drift towards selfishness. So we can't take our hands off the tiller of our lives and say, I'm just going to float down this river because when we do, we float towards destruction. We have to fight to keep the gospel center in our life. We have to fight to keep the the glory of God as the the premier focus of our our brain. We have to go after that actively. Because when we let go, we're going towards destruction. 
And the last command that Jesus gives to the church at Sardis is that they need to repent. They need to repent. Repentance is acknowledging that you have gone off the rails. Repentance is changing your mindset towards sinfulness. Right? We have a tendency when we, when we let go of the gospel and when we start drifting in our life, we start to think that this sin is okay. Right? We begin thinking that maybe the culture around us has the right idea about sin and, and maybe, we can, maybe we are a little outdated. Maybe we are you know, in the Stone Ages with, with how we think about things like sexuality and power and prestige. But we have to set our minds right on sin. God is very clear about what sin is and it is rebellion against Him. And so we have to change our mindset towards our sinfulness. We have to actively walk away from sin back towards righteousness. And that's the beautiful thing about God's love for us is that He offers, there is always the opportunity to repent. When there is life in your body, air in your lungs, blood beating in your heart, you have the opportunity to repent. And we see that because He has told them to be alert, there is still life in this church. And there is still time for them to turn back away from their sinful pursuits and they can get back on track and be impactful for the kingdom of God. Jesus says if they do this, the reward is that we have three things that we see there in their, in their reward. In verse 4, Jesus says that there are some who have not defiled their clothes. A small minority has been standing strong for Jesus, both in their conduct and in their confession. And for those who stand with Jesus and for those who endure, they have three promises of reward from Christ. Number one, it says they will be clothed in His perfect righteousness. Right? This, this is being symbolized by being clothed in white. Right? The righteousness of Christ is given to all who have truly put their faith in Him. And it means that in the eyes of God the Father, the, the just and holy, righteous judge, there is no longer any sin that can be credited to us. Right? Jesus paid for the penalty for that sin, and therefore we are considered not guilty before the Lord. We are considered justified, which is a legal term that says not guilty. Jesus paid the price for it. It didn't just go away. But in Christ, Romans 8.1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, I, I can't fathom trying to present myself to God with my resume, with how I live my life, even day to day now, 20 some odd years after following Christ, maybe 30 odd, 32 years after following Christ. How old am I? But after 32 years of following Jesus, I still, even on my best day, would not want to present that to God and say, hey, how'd I do? But in, in Christ, I get to wear white. I am deemed as righteous and justified because of what Christ has done for me. And what it says there as well, number two, that their name, if they continue on and, and follow Jesus, they are considered righteous. And it says, number two, that their name will never be erased from the book of life. Salvation is eternal. Because 
when we have truly accepted faith in Jesus because there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. There is also nothing that we can do to lose that salvation. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we come to faith in Jesus, God holds us tightly in His hand. And there is nothing on this earth that can remove us from His hand. So if they remain faithful, like how hard is it to remain faithful to the Lord in this life? Well, in certain circumstances, it's insanely hard. It's incredibly difficult. But Jesus says, if you will persevere for this short amount of time, There is a promise of forever. There's a promise of eternity that says that you will be with God forever. So endure the hardship. Endure the persecution. Push away the lethargy and and the apathy that so commonly pursues us. Push all of that away and pursue after the things of God with everything that you have for your entire life. And if you do, it will be worth it because your name will never be erased from the book of life. Why would you trade 60, 70, 80 years for eternity? Why would you give that up? It makes no sense. And lastly there, he says, those who endure to the end... Those who continue on will be clothed in righteousness. Their name will be put in the book of life forever. And it says there that uh, they will also be acknowledged by the Son before the Father and His angels. Jesus' acknowledgement clearly states that we belong to Him. That's mine. When He looks at you and presents you to God, He says, Chris is mine. I bought and paid for His righteousness. Chris is mine. He belongs to me. We are now brothers and sisters with Christ. The Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ. So when God looks at us, He doesn't see us, He sees Jesus. And then we get the righteousness that, that Jesus has. And therefore, we also get everything that Jesus has been given. And He acknowledges like those days when I get in my head and I realize how bad of a day it's been. When I realize how far off the path and how, how I've left the gospel behind and, and I'm pursuing my own selfishness. Right, no matter how bad that is, Jesus has got me right here. He says, Chris is mine. He presents me before the Father and His angels as mine. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Number one, we must be on alert. Right? It doesn't take long to slip into the problems that all of these churches have. If we are not actively pursuing God, if we're not actively keeping the gospel as center priority in our life, it does not take long to end up where all of these rebukes are for these churches. So we must be alert. We must prize the gospel above all things. Number two, we must remember what we have received and heard as well. 
Right? The gospel has got to be the primary focus. If it's not, we don't need to be here. Right? If this is just a social gathering, then we don't need to be here. If this is just an opportunity for us to check boxes, we don't need to be here. The church in Sardis reminds us that the amount of people that we have here from week to week or the amount of activity that we have going here is not the point of why Oak Grove exists. Right? We do not want our works to be found incomplete before God. If we're not focused on the salvation of non-believers and the maturation of believers, then this church exists for no reason. The gospel must be the foundation of everything that we do. And lastly, there may be some here who appear to be alive and yet are actually spiritually dead inside. Right? This happens so, so often in churches. A lot of times people are pushed for a decision. Right? I'm going to play just as I am one more time. If nobody comes up, we're going to run it again. Right? Somebody better come up here and do something. Right? Push for a decision. Push for a decision. I'm going to try to scare you before you leave. Or I'm going to bludgeon you over the head with the gospel before you leave. And so at some point in your life, you may have prayed a prayer. That sinner's prayer, as it's referred to, is not a magical incantation. Just because you say those words doesn't mean that you're a follower of Christ. Right? Maybe, even after that, you have made it a point to come to church regularly. Right? You serve in the church. You give to the church. Right? You go through all these motions of religiosity, but maybe you're here today and say, if you search your heart, you're missing at that relationship with Jesus. Now, if that's you here today, I want to plead with you to not leave this place until the Holy Spirit is done with what He wants to do in your heart today. Right? Just because we do religious things does not mean that we have a relationship with Christ. And so before you go, as we sing this last song, I want you to think about your relationship with Jesus. Is it a true change of heart for you? Have you put the old person to death and are you now living life in the new person? And if not, don't leave this place without having that conversation with Jesus. Don't leave this place as the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart and saying, no, this is not salvation. This is not life. You look like you're alive, but you are really dead. If that's you here today, come talk to me after the service. Don't leave this place. Or if you're unclear, don't leave this place without having that conversation. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would protect this church from the appearance of life, but the reality of death. I pray that we would be alert that we would constantly be battling to keep the gospel center to everything that we're doing, that we would not grow apathetic, that we would not grow cold uh, to the community around us that needs to hear uh, the truth of your word the and see the beauty of the gospel. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray that today would be the, the day that the Holy Spirit reveals that need to them. If there's any here who have begun to 
let go of the, the centrality of the gospel in their life. They've begun to, to fade and uh, to drift. I pray that today would be the day that you encourage them to repent and to keep that truth of your gospel at the forefront of their mind. As we go from this place, help us to take that gospel with us. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.